0: get what I want, and so I'm going to go buy it for myself. In fact, it's almost uh, our way societally of saying what you got me isn't good enough, so I'm going to go buy something for myself, right? And then you see something like this kid right here. tell you how this video came about. Everybody in the room was getting gifts. This little boy didn't get a gift, uh, and he was complaining that he didn't get a gift, so his dad very quickly takes a banana, drops it in one of the bags, puts the leftover tissue paper in it, hands it to him, expecting that he's going to be really upset. What they didn't count on was that kid knows the secret to being content in any and every situation. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we continue with our series called In the Meantime. Now, so last week, we asked this question, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? In other words, what, if you, what do you do when you're in a situation that, that doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon? Uh, for you, maybe it's a financial situation. You, you've made some mistakes, uh, you lost a job, you had an emergency, whatever, and now Uh, There are times when you feel like you're getting ahead, you take one or two steps forward, but then it seems like any time you're able to make any progress financially, uh, your legs just get knocked out from under you and you take another step backwards and you feel like you're never going to be able to get out of the situation you're in. You're never going to be able to get out of the hole you dug. What do you do? When there's nothing you can do. Maybe it's a marriage situation. You know, he doesn't want a divorce. She doesn't want a divorce. We're not going to get a divorce, but we're really just coexisting right now. There's no, there's no love in the marriage. There's no shared goals, but we're in it for the kids. Or maybe even the kids are gone, but you know what? I've always taught there's no such thing as divorce. We shouldn't get divorced, and so uh, we're going to stay together. But there's really no progress being made in the marriage. It looks like we're not going to get better anytime soon. What do you do? Maybe you got a bad report from your doctor or you're in the middle of treatment, in the midst of chemo or radiation, and there's progress, but there's not great progress, and maybe it's not going to kill you, but it's going to affect the rest of your life, and you don't know what that's going to look like. You feel like you're in a holding pattern in your life. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Or maybe it's academically, and you messed up, and you're only now beginning to understand that. You chose the wrong school, or you couldn't get into the right school, or you didn't pay much attention to your grades before, but now your GPA is so bad that even if you got straight A pluses. Uh, For the rest of all your semesters in school, there's no way you can bring your grades up high enough, and you're not going to go to law school, you're not going to go to medical school, you're not going to get your dream job. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Well, for many of us, the first temptation is to run away, to just abandon ship, leave your family, drop out of school, drink yourself into oblivion, stay high all the time, or if it gets bad enough, maybe even take your own life. Because after all, wouldn't they all be better off? without me. But we know, when you think about it, that just creates a bigger set of problems for everybody else too, and that never helps, but you feel completely powerless. You feel like you've got no control, like there's nothing you can do, and then maybe you come around to the place where many of us do in those situations. We come back to the idea that somehow it's God's fault, that that if if God is a good, good father and he loves me, then why is this happening to me? Uh, And so last week we talked about some of the lies that we tell ourselves, the lies that we tell ourselves. And uh, these lies are, I'll never be happy again. Nothing good can come from this. And there's no point in continuing. And so last week, Andy Stanley uh, did our sermon via video. If you missed it, it's a great, uh, a great message. Uh, there's a link on our app to the video podcast. You can watch it. I highly recommend you do that because it's incredible. Um, but he said something that was so good and so powerful, and some of, you, so, some of you told me it was so meaningful for you that I thought we had to repeat it this week. He said that even when it seems like it, that God is not absent, apathetic, or angry. He said, God is not absent. Don't mistake his silence for absence. That he's still there. He's still in charge. He's still on his throne. He's still a good, good father. He's not apathetic. In other words, God didn't just like start the whole earth and set it in motion and say, good luck, guys. Have fun. That's not God. He's not apathetic. He cares. He cares about uh, your actions and mine. He cares about your life and mine. He cares about the little details of your life. And God's not angry. It's, It's God's desire that you find a saving relationship with him through Jesus Christ. I've never heard of anybody who entered into a loving relationship because somebody was angry at them. God's not angry at you. And so sometimes we have a hard time with that because we've kind of created, in our 21st century Western philosophy, in our, uh, you know, American church religion, we've created this conflict of the idea between a good God and having adversity. We've developed this theology that if there's a good God and he does care and he's good, then, then and if I'm a Christian and I come to church and I sing the songs and I give some money, then I should never face adversity. Well, I need to tell you that in the first century, the very first believers never had that conflict. In fact, if you read the New Testament, what you see instead is the first Christians enduring persecution. They're, they're stoned. They're crucified for their faith. They're thrown into prison for their faith. And you never see any of them saying, Why do bad, good things happen or bad things happen to good people? You know, you never hear them say that in the New Testament. But what I hope you'll see today in the time we have together is there is no conflict between a good God. And bad circumstances. And I think through the passage we read today, you'll see that even in the midst of unbelievable adversity, we can find contentment. We're going to be reading a statement by a man named Paul. We told part of Paul's story about two weeks ago. If you were here, you may remember that. But in case you missed it, or if you have a hard time remembering stuff, let's, let's briefly review his history. Paul was one of the greatest enemies of the church. His goal in life was to see the flames of Jesus extinguished. And so that was his uh, goal that was his passion that was his job and so when we first meet Paul, he is giving approval to the stoning of Stephen who Stephen was one of the uh, early disciples in the church he was probably one of the first deacons in the church we would call him and and Paul is giving his approval to that and in fact Scripture tells us that when uh, men would come together to uh, stone Christians that Paul would be the guy that held their coats so that they wouldn't get dirt on their coats or blood on their coats. So a real nice guy, right, Paul was. Uh, But then one time, Paul's on his way to Damascus to snuff out some more believers. He's met on the road by this bright light and confronted by Jesus himself. Now, there's one problem with this. Paul knows for a fact that Jesus is dead. So he's got a real dilemma here because he's walking to get rid of some of Jesus' followers, and here is Jesus that he knows to be dead, appearing to him in real life and speaking to him. You know, so uh, Jesus has died. Uh, he uh, some of these believers are talking about how no, he's been raised to life. He's actually alive, and that's why Paul wants to kill these guys because they keep talking about this guy that he knows is dead. But no, they're saying he's actually alive, and now he's got this real dilemma because the guy that he's sure is dead is standing right in front of him and talking to him. And so Paul decides, as I did, that when the dead guy talks to you, you should listen to him. And so that's what he does. And so uh, Jesus tells Paul, you're going to be used to expand my kingdom. So after he recovers, and it would take a while to recover from that, Paul becomes, after Jesus, probably the best evangelist the world has ever known. He, He travels the known world at the time, preaching about Jesus and planting churches everywhere he goes. But then about 10 years in, about 10 years into Paul's ministry, something happens. The authorities get tired of him. Uh, The emperor in Rome at that time is a guy by the name of Nero. Uh, Nero is not a nice guy. In fact, Nero is probably best known for having his mother murdered because she disapproved of him marrying uh, his second wife. Not a very nice guy, right? And so this is the guy that Paul is in charge of the area where Paul is, uh, is going around preaching. And then remember the guys Paul used to work for, the guys that wanted all the Christians snuffed out? Well, they're still there. And now that Paul's one of them, uh, he wants, they, those guys want Paul gone too. But they've got this problem in that Paul's a Roman citizen, so he has some rights. And so they can't kill him. They can't really you know, punish him too much because they'd have to have a trial and he's got rights. And so they just decide to throw him in prison. They throw him in jail in Rome. Now, in a way, this is a fulfillment of Paul's dreams. He says, he writes in Romans 1, that it's been his lifelong desire to go to Rome. And now Paul finally gets to go to Rome, but he doesn't go as a preacher. He goes as a prisoner, and he's there in jail. And so there's there's no charges. There's no trial date. There's there's no hope of getting out. Paul is in an in-the-meantime moment. This is not what he expected. There's no end in sight. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? See, Paul was a go-getter. He was always busy. He was traveling. He was preaching. He was encouraging, planting churches, And, and now he's grounded. He's not going anywhere. So he decides what he's going to do is write some letters. <laughs> and So he, uh, he's got all these churches that he planted, and so he decides to write letters to them. And we don't know how many letters he wrote, but we know that he wrote at least four. Now, How do we know that? Well, because they're in our Bible today. There are four books in the New Testament that are actually letters that Paul wrote to churches uh, or people while he was in prison. They're sometimes known as the prison epistles, and they're these four. They're Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so these are four books in the New Testament. They were all written by Paul while he was in prison. So think about this. Next time you're reading one of these four books, uh, if you get any encouragement, uh, any wisdom, uh, any direction from these four books, most of us can be really sure that we're getting it from a person whose circumstances are worse than ours, right? Because Paul is in prison in Rome when he writes this. And now, let me tell you what's amazing about the fact that Paul did this. First of all, the words he wrote are amazing. Some of the most read, quoted, translated, uh, memorized words are, uh, in history of man are in these four books, in these four letters. In fact, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, more than five billion times these words have been printed uh, on paper. More than five billion times. They've been read by people all throughout the world, more than any other book. Now, here's the other amazing thing. What are the odds that these letters could even survive the first century? Have you ever thought about that? Paul is in prison, and he's in prison for for speaking the words that he writes on these letters. And he hands them to somebody, and somehow they made it out of the first century, and they made it 2,000 years so far so that we still have them today. Emperors wrote letters in multiple copies, and had them sealed in vaults for posterity's sake. And some of those letters we don't even have anymore. But Paul writes one copy, hands it to one guy, good luck, make sure this gets in the right hands. And it not only makes it to the destination, but it survives 2,000 years so that we've got copies of these letters for future Christians to read. Now here's what we can gain from this. Paul had no idea. He had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to remain faithful when everything around him told him to quit. I mean, Paul wants to go to Rome as a preacher. He ends up there as a prisoner. He could give up. He's doing what God's clearly called him to do, and what is the reward he gets? He gets thrown in prison. Have you ever thought about this? You've heard the phrase, uh, maybe you've heard this, especially if you grew up in church, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. If there's a guy in Scripture that's in the center of God's will more than Paul, I don't know who it is, right? And so here's what he's doing. He's doing exactly what God called him to do, and as a reward, he's in prison. And remember, this isn't the first hardship Paul has faced. Now, he tells us in 2 Corinthians, he was shipwrecked three times. He was left floating at sea. Uh, he was bitten by a poisonous snake. He was stoned. He was beaten with a rod. Five times, he was given 39 lashes uh, by the Jews with whips. Everything around him told him to quit. Hey, Paul, you've had a good life. You had a good run. You had a good ministry, man. Ten years is a pretty good time. You look at all these churches you planted. Why don't you just relax? Take some time in prison. Take a chill. You know, enjoy the food that they don't bring you. Enjoy, you know, whatever you can enjoy in prison. Enjoy your time in Rome. Just take a chill pill. But Paul couldn't do that. And because he couldn't do that, and because he remained faithful, we have these great words to encourage us today. So when you feel like giving up, you know, when everything around you encourages you to quit, remember, you have no idea who or what hangs in the balance of your decision to remain faithful. So Paul decides to write these letters, and in one of these letters, he gives us the secret to surviving an in the meantime moment. He's writing to believers in the church in Philippi. This is where we're going to read today. In modern, it's in modern day Greece, uh, up in the Macedonia region of Greece. And these believers, this church had sent him a gift. They sent him a care package. Now, we don't know what was in it. Um, you know, probably some Oreos and, you know, stuff like that. Maybe a cell phone card. I don't know. Anyway, he gets a care package, and uh, he gets a gift, and he's responding uh, where we pick up in Philippians 4.10. Uh, I'm not going to be able to turn to it real quick, so I'll just read it off my page. He says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. And then, so he, he backs up. He says, I rejoice in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. And then he seems to back up a little bit. Indeed, I knew you were already concerned. So it's almost like, hey, finally, at last you renewed your concern for me. And then he says, well, you know what? I knew you were concerned for me, but you didn't have any opportunity to show. In other words, I wasn't there with you, so you couldn't show me. Um, But he says this. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So thanks for sending that. I appreciate it. I want you to know I'm deeply thankful for you. But I also want you to know that I didn't need it. That I don't really need stuff because I've learned to be content. And what Paul is going to tell him next is the secret to surviving in the meantime moment. In Philippians 4.12, this is what he says. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, I've been in need, and that helped me. I learned to be content when I was in need, and I've had plenty. And he said, and when I was in need... I didn't get too torn up about being in need because I learned to be content. And when I had a lot, I didn't get used to having a lot because I knew that probably there was going to be a time coming when I wasn't going to have a lot anymore. So I've learned the secret of being content. Hey, did you know it's almost as hard, it's probably maybe harder to be content when you have plenty than when you're in need? You ever seen that? Anybody ever been on a mission trip? And you go to these places and you see these people and you, you meet these people and they're like, they have nothing but they seem to have everything at the same time. You know what I'm talking about? If you've been to Haiti or you've been uh, someplace in Africa or you go to these places and you meet these people and you go, you don't have anything and yet you're the happiest person I've ever met in my life. Right? Because it's so hard sometimes when we have so much to be content. Paul says, I I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty and I've learned the secret to being content. And this is what he gives them. He says this, the secret to surviving and in the meantime moment is learning to be content in every situation. Now, here's what Paul didn't say. Your problems don't matter. He didn't say, I'm not suffering in prison. He didn't say, just just brush them off. You know, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps, be an overcomer, ignore all your problems, whatever. Paul wasn't really a whatever kind of guy. Paul, if you read his story, he was a guy of extremes. You know, when he was against Christians, he wanted to kill them all. And now that he's a Christian, he wants to save them all. That's Paul's life. He's not a, oh, well, whatever. That's not what he's saying. But instead, what he said is, there is a secret to being content in any and every situation. And whether you know it or not, and whether you believe it or not, Paul writes, I know it exists because I found it. And let me ask you, if there truly were a secret to being content in any and every situation, wouldn't you want to know it? Like, wouldn't you take that class? Wouldn't you sign up for that workshop? If there was a three-day workshop of the secret to being content in any and every situation, and you were in an in-the-meantime moment, and you really want? wouldn't you sign up for that? I would. Well, he's about to tell us, and it's going to be free. (laughs) But I want to warn you something. This is one of the most quoted, and I'm going to say misquoted, and misapplied, and misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. But you need to be careful not to take this verse out of context because when you take this verse out of context, you miss the secret to being content in any and every situation. Here's what he says. I can do all this. All what? I can do prison. I can do the floggings, the shipwrecks, the ministry, the church planning, the stoning, the writing, the snake bites, the in-the-meantime moments. I can, I can do all of this through him. Who gives me strength. Now, if you grew up in church, if you are used to reading the King James Bible, you may know it says through Christ who gives me strength. Here, here's effectively what Paul says. When you take on the life of Christ, you get the strength of Christ. When, when you start submitting your life to his lordship, you get his strength to help with those in the meantime moments. In, in other words, I like to say it this way. In our weakest moments, God gives us his strength. So when you feel like you don't have the strength to go on, maybe you don't. But he does. And he'll give you that strength. And, and, and you know what? You know that. And, and if you believe it, and if you start to live it, you get to this place where you can't, don't stop at I can't. Instead, you come to a place where you say, I can't, but he can. When you can't dig yourself deep, out of that financial hole and you feel like you can't get out you can't but he can when your marriage is failing and you don't think there's a way out you can't take it anymore you can't but he can when your friends at school turn against you and it feels like you just want to crawl into a hole because you're so humiliated you're so embarrassed you can't even go to class anymore you can't but he can you can do all this through him who gives us strength This leaves some of us with a real dilemma. I know what you're thinking, some of you, because I've heard it even this week. Here's the dilemma. If there's a good God, he, he's a good, good father who loves me. Now, I'm not even sure there is, Steve, okay, but I know you believe it, and so I'm willing to give you that. I'm willing to buy it, but, but if, if God is not absent or apathetic or angry and he cares about me, and he has the strength, he has the power to change my circumstances. So in other words, there's a good God who loves me, and he has the power to change my situation. Here's the question. Here's the dilemma. Why doesn't he? That's a great question. And it's one that I've wrestled with as a seeker, and then as a follower of Jesus, and now as a pastor. And even sometimes when I sit down and I hear some of your stories and I wrestle through your situations, I find myself praying, God, he didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. Why are they suffering through this? And here's the conclusion I've come to. Maybe this will be satisfying for some of you. Maybe it won't. But if he can but doesn't, there must be a reason that we don't understand. There must be a bigger plan that we can't see. So let me ask you this as an example. How many of you have at some point in your life had a fitness plan that you've stuck with pretty religiously? You followed for a long time. I'm not talking about like it's January 10th. I've been on it for 10 days. Woo! You know, I'm talking about like three months, six months, a year. Anybody done that? And you started to see like real changes in your body and you started to notice improvement. You started to see things happening. Now, let me ask you this. Raise your hand again if you've done that. Okay. So about a third of the room. Let me ask you this for those of you who raise your hand. Were there ever days while you were on that plan when you thought, this is stupid. I don't know why I'm doing this workout today. I don't know why I'm eating this food today. There's a great pizza in the refrigerator, right? <laughs> have You ever had those days? Anybody? Yeah, of course you have. We all feel like quitting, right? We all feel like giving up when we do that, but we don't. It, the The secret of people who are successful at this is that they don 't give up. why? Because they understand that today 's work is just part of a bigger plan, right? When you can see the end goal in mind, when you can see the end goal now for me for me i 'm somebody who I love to go to the gym I, I love to run, I love to work out, but for me to stay focused on fitness, I have to have Something in front of me. I have to have a plan. I need a trainer. That's what I need. I need a personal trainer. I need an event to train for. I need something out in front of me so that I can see, I can make that connection that every day, every trip to the gym, every run is part of a bigger plan. Because if I can't see the bigger plan, I'm going to find myself stuck in this moment where I go, you know what? This is stupid. There's a football game on. Why am I running right now? Why am I here at the gym lifting weights? I could be back at home playing with my kids. But when you see the plan, It's easier to do the work. And when you have a trainer or somebody who's put thought into the plan, and you start to see that every workout is a building block into the goal, then you start to understand that even though I don't feel like doing this today, if I do the work, it's going to help me reach that goal. It's going to help me reach that destination. Now, here's the thing. When you trust the trainer, you don't question the work that they give you to do. I just do it. Because even when I don't understand the bigger plan, I know that today's stresses, today's work is a building block in that plan. And Paul understood that. Even in his difficult time, he knew that Christ had a plan for him. Look at this, uh, where he wrote earlier in Philippians, Philippians 1, 12. He says, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the palace guard to everyone I meet, or to everyone else, that I am in chains. For Christ. From a guy who's in the in the meantime moment. To be able to see that. And to be able to proclaim that. And in a way that he's not just writing it. But that everybody there knows that about him. Is pretty incredible. So could it be that you're in an in the meantime moment. Now for a reason that you can't understand. But that God is going to use it to develop you. To make you stronger in your faith and he's going to bring glory to himself through it. Could it be that your pain is part of a bigger plan, and while you can't see the whole thing right now, how could your life change if you had the attitude, I'm going to learn the secret to being content in every situation. I'm going to do the hard work today that he's going to use for my good in the end. You know, Horatio Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and real estate investor in Chicago in the late 19th century, Then came the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, which wiped out his real estate holdings and ruined him financially. Uh, Spafford began to rebuild. The entire country fell into a recession in 1873, which kept him from traveling on a cruise to Europe with his wife and four daughters. But while crossing the Atlantic, his wife and four daughters, their cruise ship crashed with another ship and sank, and all four of Spafford's daughters were killed. His wife, Anna, after safely arriving aground in Europe, sent this tragic two-word telegram. It says, survived alone. Spafford had to immediately drop his business dealings he was working on in Chicago, take the next ship to meet his grieving wife. And as he sailed across the Atlantic with all of these circumstances behind him, he penned the words to one of our most famous hymns. He wrote, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's a secret to being content in any and every situation. And if we believe that there's a good God who wants good for his children, and we believe that he can do all things, then we can be content in knowing that even when we can't, he can. Would you pray with me? God, I don't always understand kingdom math and kingdom logic and why when you can, you don't. And why, when you love us, you don't. But God, you have brought me to a place where I trust that you have a plan. And and I want to believe that, and I want to trust that for everyone in this room who's in an in the meantime moment right now. That you have a plan for what they are going through, what they've gone through, what they're going to go through, and that you are going to use it to make them so much better and stronger. And that you're going to, as Carissa said earlier, that you're going to use it to draw them closer to you. And that in that moment, when we get out of those in the meantime moments, that you will be brought great glory through that. Lord, I don't know how it works, but you have brought me to a place. I've seen it so many times that I understand it. Please help us all to understand it. Help us to see that. Help us to be able to to look at a situation and be content in any and every situation. Help us to see your strength is our strength. that's available for us to use. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.